1: Here's your host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
2: And welcome to today's edition of Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Well, the news never fails to provide us with interesting material to analyze on my couch. And uh, fortunately, we also have some experts to help me analyze it. Today, we're going to be talking about Dr. Bruce Ivins, uh, he is, or was, um, the target of the FBI's investigation. He was a suspect uh, for having disseminated anthrax soon after 9-11. And the question that we're going to be looking at today is, did shame, guilt, or the government drive him to suicide? It's uh, The answer to this question may well be buried with Bruce Ivins, but we're going to try to make sense of the wild accusations that have been swirling around him. He's been called the anthrax scare mastermind, a homicidal maniac, but is he the victim of misguided investigators and therapists? I say yes for sure to the therapist part, and we'll hear more about that. Weighing in is bioterrorism expert Jim Posel and forensic scientist, Dr. Lawrence Kobolinsky. Um, Jim, we'll start with you, because Jim uh, viewed the September 11th attacks on the World Trade Center from the roof of his apartment, and like he and I, <laughs> I didn't view it from my, the roof of my apartment, but our lives were changed, as were the lives, really, of all of us. Um, but Jim then started to uh, work as the assistant to the senior science advisor for NBC and CBS in New York on the anthrax cleanups, and he helped to develop the interim cleanup guidelines that were used by the New York City Board of Health and Centers for Disease Control. And eventually... He uh his passion for national security, safety and the environment led him to join forces with a group of like-minded thinkers and they formed a company called Decisive Action and he is the senior poli- senior environmental policy analyst for the group. So, welcome to the show both of you. Uh Dr. Lawrence Kobylinski is as I said a forensic scientist and he is also the chairman of the Department of Sciences of John J uh, College of Criminal Justice. So both of you will weigh in on on Bruce Ivins. And, um, but before we start talking about him, let's, have, let's get the background, remind everybody about what happened in terms of anthrax after 9-11. So, Jim, why don't we start with you?
3: Well, uh, as soon as 9-11 happened, uh, two or three days after the attacks, uh, assessments were made by the news media. And by the government asked what the follow-up attacks were, Uh, as we all remember, well, the airports were shut down, a lot of we weren't allowed to move freely in some cities, and things of that nature. And the question of bioterrorism came up. And at some point in September, uh, about the twenty-fifth, some letters were received initially at the American Media uh, Building in. Florida, and... Which is, um,
2: let me me remind people or tell people, that is the headquarters of the National Enquirer and uh, their other publications.
3: Correct. And eventually Tom Brokaw, Dan Rather, uh, several other news media outlets, as well as uh, Senator Daschle and Senator Leahy's office in Washington, D.C., received letters with anthrax. Uh, containing anthrax. And let me point out that this was not the first time in history that this type of attack uh, has taken place. Anthrax was used uh, by the Czechoslovakian resistance during World War II against the Nazis. So there was already a model in place. How effective the Czechoslovakians were, we're not sure. We realized how effective the perpetrator in September 2001 was for perpetrators. Uh, there were 17 people who eventually came down with anthrax, either cutaneous, meaning on the skin, or inhalational. Uh, the ones, five of the people who contracted inhalational anthrax, ended up dying. And in short, uh, the cleanups that I was involved with, as well as the post office, uh, post offices in the heart state office building. Lasted for some time afterwards. The post offices uh, were being cleaned up to three years after hmm. the attack, and uh, as well as the American Media Building. Uh, the Hard Senate Office Building was put back in uh, operation shortly thereafter. However, they have some new procedures for handling mail and things of that nature. And in short, that's what the history of the
2: anthrax cleanups were. And um, and there has been, subsequent to that, of course, there's been an investigation going on to try to find the perpetrator or perpetrators. And why don't we turn now to Dr. Kobolenski to continue that.
4: Yes, well, obviously, uh, an act like this uh, creates a great deal of panic. Uh, across the country. Uh, obviously, uh, infection with an agent such as this uh, can be fatal 75% of the time, and that is if the uh, victim is treated appropriately. Uh, and, in fact, uh, we were very, very fortunate that the agent that was used was actually sensitive to a number of antibiotics, including Cipro, uh, the, the government, the U.S. government, understanding how significant a danger this kind of attack could be, uh, has developed, uh, you know, facilities, maybe five or six facilities around the country where, uh, antibiotics such as Cipro is stored so that in the event of another attack, um, the antibiotics can be flown to the site, and uh, people uh, can be provided with protection. Um, this was uh, a typical criminal investigation, and it started uh, from, um, from A and went to Z. And, and by that, I mean um, the FBI was really not prepared uh, to look into biohazards uh, and biological agents. That really was not their, their primary function. But they quickly realized that to, to get a handle on this, they really needed to learn more about anthrax, about the life cycle, um, about how the agent could be um, uh, generated, cultured, uh, and how it could be uh, converted into a weapon of mass destruction. Um, and by that I mean milled, uh, ground down to very, very fine particles, Particles so small that they can penetrate the pores uh, of an envelope. You know, if you look at an envelope under the microscope, you will see a cross-hatching uh, appearance, and there are microscopic pores. And these spores, when milled down to the proper size, are so small that they can penetrate the paper. Uh, and, if, of course, if an envelope is opened, these spores can simply almost, not vaporized, but um, become uh, airborne, essentially. And inhalation is one of the uh, most dangerous ways of contracting an infection with anthrax. There are three different ways people become infected. One is, of course, cutaneous, um, and the cutaneous lesions appear black uh and that's where the bacteria got its name from anthracite black coal anthrax so because of the appearance of these lesions um, it got its name um, but of course you can also ingest uh these spores through eating uh tainted meat um, and uh, that can lead to a very fatal uh illness uh, that affects the gastrointestinal tract. It ends up in the lymphatic system and creates a great deal of, of damage uh, and eventually is fatal. And, of course, the third way, which is the way we fear most, is through inhalation. Because that, of course, that represents a, uh, a potential for a weapon of mass destruction. So the FBI started an investigation. They, they needed to know who in the country was working with anthrax, of course, Remember that, you know, the letters, uh, the paper of the letters and the writing, that obviously was something that the FBI investigated thoroughly. They're very good at looking at documents, uh, and clearly they were unable to generate uh, very much information, although they did come to the conclusion that this was a local attack, not something uh, carried out by uh, foreign uh, foreigners. Um, that brought this agent into the country. You know, anthrax was available to researchers throughout the country, and it was quite easy to buy. You could go to a, a type culture um, agency and just purchase it because you were going to be doing research on it. So I, I don't want to occupy too much time with this at the moment. I just wanted to give some insights into the challenges uh, to the FBI, an agency really not prepared to deal with biohazards, so the investigation was conducted as any criminal investigation gathering information. I'm going to stop here and, you know, we'll we'll wait for some more questions from you.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. see if I could add one thing to what you said. Uh, the Department of Justice called it the largest and most complex investigation in history they had ever undertaken. And that would seem to verify exactly what you said
2: yes and and when when you were mentioning before about the uh, that it was used against the nazis what what was the result of that
3: uh, we're not sure what the results were uh, to that but it, that was one of the ways that uh, the resistance did uh, did uh, fight against the nazis also it's important to note that if you're a member of the media, I'm sure you've uh, gotten this yourself, Dr. Carroll, from time to time you receive a lot of all Different types of interesting things in the mail, and uh, that's one of the big challenges with uh, being in the public eye. Or
2: yes, we'll 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 go back to that after the break. I'm sorry. Um, That's okay. I just don't want you to be drowned out by the music. Um, We will. We do need to take a break. We're beginning our investigation of uh, what drove Bruce Ivins to suicide, and um, talking telling you a little bit about reminding you about the anthrax attacks and and uh, we'll sort of be examining now exactly how this path led to the poor Bruce Ivins, in my opinion. So stay tuned, you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
0: Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now. 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Had an accident? The people you may encounter may be attorneys, doctors, and insurance agents. How do you protect yourself and your family? Tune into Meeting by Accident with Attorney Tom Woodruff, an experienced trial attorney and former legislator. Attorney Woodruff and his expert guests assist and inform on what to do in a crisis, what steps to take, what to avoid, and most important, what you need to know to get through the process. Meeting by Accident broadcasts every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America channel. Because being informed makes all the difference. Tune into Meeting by Accident
1: with Attorney Tom Woodruff. Are you having difficulty coping with these troubled times? Do you want help? Then contact Dr. Carol Lieberman today at www.drcarol.com. Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD.
5: Every Monday at 1 p.m. PST, right here on the Voice America channel.
0: VoiceAmerica.com
1: Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
2: Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman talking to you today about anthrax and the anthrax suspect, Bruce Ivans, who recently committed suicide. The question is, did shame, guilt, or government drive him to suicide? And that's what we're talking about with my guests, Jim Posel. He is a bioterrorism expert, and Dr. Lawrence Kobolinsky, who is a forensic scientist. Uh, we've been reminding you about the incident with anthrax that happened after 9/11. And um, we're going to be dissecting uh, the FBI investigation and and what might have led them to Bruce Ivins and whether, in fact, it's likely that uh, his suicide proved or disproved um, that he was indeed the anthrax scare mastermind, or was he a homicidal maniac, as his lovely social worker uh, said, um, or... Well, she actually said that psychiatrists said that, and that's going to be interesting to find the psychiatrist who will now admit to that if, if in fact, they, there were, were ever any that said that, um, which seems unlikely. Or is was Bruce Ivins the victim of misguided investigators and therapists? Um, we're talking today with bioterrorism expert Jim Puzzle, and forensic scientist Dr. Lawrence Kobolinski, as I said, and let's go. Let's go back. We'll go back to Jim um, to talk about this whole issue. We're starting before the break to talk about the mail. And I remember, you know, we were all somewhat panicked about uh, opening things that we never had received before in the mail, and so on. So, what about that? How? How? You know, what? What happens in in the future? I mean, that's really what we're kind of wondering about how likely is anthrax going to be to be used as a bioterrorism agent in the future, how uh, potent is it, and should we be afraid to open our mail?
3: Well, uh, Dr. Cowell, it's...
2: Speak up, Jim.
3: Okay. Uh, Getting back to the mail situation, the biggest hazard dealing with anything biological, any biological material, even if you're dealing with a mold situation, up to an anthrax situation is that once a biological contamination of some sort comes into your house, it's how do we get it out of the house? So uh, what happens is lawyers at a certain point get involved here and, well, what's the risk and how uh, are we going to uh, do this cleanup? And, for example, uh, with... And this is on the public record. With NBC, uh, the decision was made to uh, demolish and to throw out uh, contaminated or potentially contaminated items. And that's one of the one of the challenges in this sort of situation: is how safe is safe? How much anthrax is okay? Uh, some of the studies say one to th- uh, as little as one to three uh, spores could cause a problem. And now we're we're dealing with the mail where Dr. Kowalinski described how anthrax could actually be leaking out of paper envelopes. And as far as bringing mail into the house or into your place of business, uh, what I have done is no mail comes into my apartment or my house. Everything goes to a post office box and it gets sorted out the post office. If something looks suspicious or from someone who I don't know, that goes uh, gets disposed of or whatever is appropriate if I need to report it to postmaster.
2: Now that's interesting. Are you um, are you suggesting that everyone do that or are you? do you feel that you're in some particular high risk because you're a bioterrorism expert and some people might not like you or why do you do that?
3: I do that for the second reason is that I feel that I may be at risk. Uh, I'm a public figure, semi-public figure at least I deal with a lot of Uh, individuals uh, in what I do in the environmental consulting business, and I normally don't receive mail at my house or my place of business. So Hmm. uh, that's the way I uh, manage it. Anyone else, am I saying everybody gets a post office box? Not necessarily. Uh, However, if your mailbox is on the porch, absolutely. Before you bring it into the house, look, sort through your mail on the porch. Yes. And follow the mail guidelines put out by the post office. If something is suspicious, meaning leaking, discolored, uh, from a, uh, foreign country, and you're not doing business with a foreign country, and things of that nature, don't even bring them to your house. That's my, uh, advice.
2: Okay. All right. Well, let's talk about Dr., um, Bruce Ivins. um, Dr. Kobolinski, what put his this whole forensic situation in some kind of perspective?
4: Well, sure. Um, the FBI uh, had to narrow down the possibilities. Uh, we're dealing with a situation post nine eleven. Uh, we know that the envelopes were mailed uh, at certain locations, certain post offices. Uh, we had some information to start out with. We had the, the documents, the letters, uh, and the notes uh, inside. We, we had some starting information. But the FBI um, decided that what they needed to do was get a handle on anthrax. Who in the country uh, works with anthrax? Um, Who had the capability of handling anthrax? You know, anthrax, in order to handle it safely, you need to use sterile techniques. You need to have a laminar flow hood. Uh, There are certain parameters for people doing research or even handling the organism. So questions started out with who had um, who have the facilities? Uh, would you find them in a research uh, institution? Would you find them in a a college, for example, a university? What kind of facilities do you need to do this? Then what kind of skills do you need to handle this kind of organism? Uh, do you need to be a microbiologist? Can a college student do it? Lots of questions like that. And as I stated a little earlier, virtually anybody could purchase anthrax. Um, simply by um, mail order. Uh without any kind of licensing or you know any kind of governmental approval, it was readily available to researchers. So the FBI started narrowing things down. Who had access to the anthrax? Uh you know, who was working with it that we knew about? Where were the vials of the cultures of bacteria? Where were they stored? Were they locked up? Uh, Were they readily available for anybody to get a hold of them? These are the kind of questions that started the investigation. And the FBI started narrowing down the field to a certain number of known researchers who had access. Um, But what really broke the case uh, was the ability to manipulate uh, genes and to do uh, the human genome sequencing. Because once we developed the technology to sequence the human genome, uh, it became that much easier as time went on and the technology got more sophisticated, to we could sequence small organisms like bacteria, like anthrax. Uh, and that really was the key here. When, when the, the, the newspapers talk about the science that broke the case, I think they're talking about the ability to sequence and to find that there are different strains of anthrax. You know, in nature, these kinds of organisms exist in different strains. And what I'm trying to say then is that their genetic sequence is subtly different. Uh, some strains have an A, a G, a C, or a T, uh, in the sequence. And one of those, one of those building blocks or bases is replaced. Uh, by a different building block. So by analyzing the different uh, types of anthrax genetically, one could define different strains. And what the FBI learned is that the strain of anthrax used in the letter attacks was the same strain that was used for vaccine development at Fort Detrick. And that was a key that kind of broke the case. Of course, unfortunately for Dr. Steve Hatfield, uh, he was the primary suspect. But there were others, and, um, and it wasn't just Dr. Ivan's. Anybody who had access to that anthrax was uh, going to be looked at very closely. The key now became who had the skills and knowledge to weaponize that anthrax, because anthrax in a liquid form can be very easily controlled. It's when it's in a fine powdered form that it becomes a huge risk and becomes a weapon of mass destruction. Uh, so that's where the FBI was going with this. It took science to break this case. And to be quite honest, the question as to whether Dr. Ivins did it or not is something that we may never know. I believe the probability is high, but there are those people that believe there is a conspiracy, there are multiple people, and that Dr. Ivins didn't even have the skills to weaponize the anthrax. I, I've heard uh, contradicting... Um, uh, commentary on this, and uh, there are those people that understand that while he was doing his vaccine experimentation, he used powdered anthrax uh, to infect um, different uh, uh, organisms so again i 'm going to stop here Sorry. you know I, I think there well, are other well, questions in jim okay
2: but okay the, the conspiracy um, that there would be a who would be involved in the conspiracy? Hmm. I mean, in other words, what you're saying is that one theory is that um, Dr. Ivins was sort of taking the fall for other people who did it and there was a cover-up. Is that what you're trying to say? I guess
4: I'm saying that there are those people who think that to pull this off from beginning to end is a complicated issue, and that he would have had to have had help, because nobody in the laboratory at Fort Detrick actually saw him using equipment uh, for the production of this fine-milled uh, anthrax, uh, and that rings up some issues did he uh, have somebody else who did have access to that capability Uh, are there others that paid him I mean there's going to be a lot of conspiracy theories Mm. here
2: Mm. well on that uh, cliffhanger let's take another break you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch I'm your psychiatrist host Dr. Carol Lieberman my guests are bioterrorism expert Jim Posel and forensic scientist Dr. Lawrence Kobolinski, and uh, we'll get back to the mystery of who sent those letters of anthrax when we come back. So stay tuned.
0: Do you know what it takes to reach massive success? Do you know that if you change your thinking, you can change your life? The Development Connection with host Amy Himes will give you the keys to reach ultimate success. Each show will feature topics to help you reach personal, career, and business ownership success. And you'll learn how to enlarge your vision to move ahead in life and within your organization. The Development Connection with Amy Himes is live every Monday on Voice America at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific. Listen today and move forward tomorrow tomorrow.
1: if you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
2: And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We left you on a cliffhanger. I'm sure you want to know uh, what I and my guests think. Um, will the real Dr. Bruce Ivins please stand up? Actually, that's kind of a sick. Unfortunately, he can't stand up because he committed suicide. The question is, why? Was it out of shame, guilt, or because the government drove him to it? Uh, and um, because he was the victim of a, a very unprofessional um, therapist, a social worker. My guests are bioterrorism expert Jim Posel, forensic scientist Dr. Lawrence Kobolinsky, and Dr. Kobolinsky was talking um when we were left on this cliff um, before the break. And I, why don't, I'd like you to uh, tell everyone what you are, I mean, state your opinion. What is it that you do yeah. you think, Dr. Ivins, is guilty of being the perpetrator or not? Well,
4: I, I certainly think that the evidence that we have heard about thus far is at best circumstantial. But, you know, most people are convicted of serious crimes based upon circumstantial evidence, I think that the probability is high that uh, Dr. Ivan's was somewhat involved in this uh, in this uh, attack. Uh, I, what I do not know is if he acted alone. Uh, Unfortunately, the loop on this will never be closed because of this uh, suicide. I'm sure that if he were still alive, there would uh, have been a great opportunity to interrogate him. We do know, we've learned just today, that he uh, was placed near the site, where the letters were mailed uh, at the Jersey uh, Post Office. Wait
2: a second, wait at- a second. Was he actually placed near, I uh, I mean, unless this came after, I, I was just looking at it to try mm-hmm. to get an update. I thought that, I mean, what, what, are you talking about the Kappa Kappa Gamma sorority situation?
4: Yes. yes. I, okay. I mean, I guess different reporters are reporting it differently, but... He had some level of a connection to that site, is what I'm saying.
2: Yes, that's what they're saying, that, that he was obsessed with Kappa Kappa Gamma, that when he was in college um, at, I think it was the University of Cincinnati, he was rebuffed by a woman in the Kappa Kappa Gamma sorority. But this Kappa Kappa Gamma, where the letters were mailed, was in Princeton, New Jersey, correct? And they, that's yes, part that's of fair. their problem, that they can't actually uh, prove that he was there at that time. I mean, other than to say that he's obsessed with Kappa Kappa Gamma, but of course okay. there are Kappa Kappa Gammas on many college campuses around the country. Right.
3: Some of the other uh, yeah. things we need to consider is that in uh, Princeton, which is the 5th legislative district of New Jersey, uh, there is, that's a hotbed of terrorist activity uh, dealing with uh, eco-terrorism and right next door in the 7th district, which is just north of that, that's where I live. There's uh, that's been a hotbed of uh, Islamic uh, activity going all the way back to 1993. Uh, so that raises mm. the question in my mind: Yes, he might have been there, but along with all these other uh, terrorist things going on, terrorists. <laughs> that may be. Uh, how, how did that factor into this? Yes, Was it he working working. Jim of- is right.
4: Yeah, totally right. I, I do agree. Just remember that he could have left his laboratory and in seven hours end, uh, end up in Princeton and then return, uh, and nobody would be the wiser. I'm just saying it's possible.
3: Right. Additionally, uh, with some of the markings on the lettering, uh, on the letters themselves, for example, the green uh, eagle and some of the other markings in there will indicate an al-Qaeda or a potential Islamic uh, connection to that. And that's one of the things, if you want to call them conspiracy theories, that's one of the ones that's going out there that seems pretty credible. I know I have uh, information from two of my sources that uh, this might have been, at least in the American media uh, building in Florida, that this might have been a disgruntled employee that was involved with uh, well, well,
2: wasn't that. there? I, I remember also hearing that um, uh, that the that Al Qaeda was not happy with the publications of American media, you know, the National Enquirer, Globe, and so on, because of the stories, uh, some of the stories that they wrote about terrorists, and right. that they had in fact um, uh, targeted. Uh, these publications, this this organization, because of it. I mean, that's the thing too. If it really was Dr. Ivan's, um, why would he have targeted the specific people that he did? Um, Jim, what do you think about that?
3: Right. Well, I know uh, Senator Leahy uh, and I and the other senator whose name escapes you right now. He, uh, both of them were blamed by Al Qaeda for funding the FBI projects and CIA projects in the Middle East that prevented a Muslim caliphate from being set up over there. So they uh, disrupted the whole system over there, and one of the theories that's out there is, is that they were targeting specifically Senator Leahy and uh, the other senator to uh, uh, to send them a message. That's why their names are on that. Additionally, uh, well, what you just said, with the news media with negative reporting on Middle Eastern issues, that they were a target. Uh, American media also with some of their coverage. So uh, if you notice, uh, during the original Iraqi war, and I don't want to get off the subject, I'm sorry, during the 2003 Iraqi war, uh, starting there, a lot of these news outlets did have deals made with the Saddam Hussein regime to for access to Saddam Hussein for favorable coverage. Hmm. Outlets like Fox News did not have that agreement and were not allowed to report in Iraq uh, with Iraqi officials hmm. for that's, the start of the war.
2: That's interesting. So
3: that would, so that would indicate that maybe
2: Hello?
3: maybe yes. the uh, news media is giving... Fa- was giving negative
2: Hello? yes, we're here we're he- we hear you, okay. Dr Kobolinsky okay um, okay, yeah, go ahead, Jim,
3: and that uh, was giving negative coverage and thus became a target.
2: hmm well, to go back to what you were saying though about the conspiracy um and about the the markings on the envelopes, I mean what could you spell that out a little more? Or are you saying yeah. then uh, that
3: well, for example? Uh, Uh, It's a rather lengthy discussion, and I know that we're uh, against the clock here. Uh, But essentially, for example, green ink, right? Green is an Islamic color. For example, the flag of Libya is green. Okay. And this was uh, some of this. Here I have it written down right here. Uh, Basically, you have uh, the Greendale school they were mailed from. All right, there is no Greendale School in New Jersey. However, a school is typically referred to as a Muslim uh, place of learning. They use a different word for that. Uh, fourth grade is a code word for sergeant. That's in the American military. Sergeant is known as fourth as a fourth grade uh, by some, uh, by many, and also uh, Al Sawahiri, who was the uh, reportedly person in al qaeda in charge of bioterrorism attacks he was known as a sergeant of Osama bin Laden mm. okay, so this is one of, some of the evidence again, it's circumstantial, uh, like a lot of this, uh, this, this ev- a lot of this evidence, like dr uh Col- Kobolowski was saying
2: okay, so and, but what you're saying is you're talking about um a uh, conspiracy. Right. Amongst terrorists, are you trying to say that they um, had paid Dr. Ivins to get access to the anthrax?
3: They might have. We mm-hmm. don't know that. Hopefully we'll know in the next few days.
2: Okay, you so your your stand on whether Dr. Ivins was a participant is?
3: Possible. Absolutely possible for that. But I don't believe that he did this alone.
2: So you both okay. sort of agree on this.
3: Yeah. We sort of agree. Uh, for example, if I could go into a little bit more yeah. detail. And one of the reasons why anthrax is not uh, widespread of an illness on, in uh, farming is, is that it has a sticky property, sort of like glue, and it also has a charge. Well, this material would have to be processed somehow to remove both those properties to make it into a aerosolizable or inhalable form, which is what would cause uh, this to be used as a weapon. That's how they weaponize anthrax. I'm not going to go into that uh, part of it, obviously. Right. But uh, this is one of the reasons why, uh, one of the arguments why uh, Dr. Ibens, or Bruce Ibens, did not do this alone, was that there, this takes equipment and Resources to do
2: this sort of thing. So, okay. So, are both of you suggesting then that perhaps um, he was uh, co-opted by a terrorist group, um, and that they provided somewhere or other the the equipment um, and the wherewithal to complete the process, and he was the one who provided the anthrax from the laboratory?
4: Well, Carol, I, I, I wouldn't go that far. I'm not convinced that this is anything but uh, something domestic. Uh, I'm really not convinced that al-Qaeda or any other terrorist group is behind this. But I do think that there was somewhat of a, a motive here on the part of Dr. Ivan's. He was developing a vaccine. He held a patent for the vaccine.
2: So he would have now wanted he would have wanted to frighten people that this could well be used as an agent of bioterrorism so that he could be funded more. That's- all right. Well, the mystery continues. We will be back. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, so stay tuned.
0: Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah!
1: Dr. Carol is a certified psychiatrist who not only has won an Emmy, but is a regular on top television shows like Oprah Winfrey and Larry King. She's here to help you through books, CDs, and helplines. Having trouble relaxing? Check out her relaxation CD. Has the fear of terrorism crippled your life? Call the terrorism hotline. And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times, www.drcarol.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
2: Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking today about the suicide of Dr. Bruce Ivins and whether or not and how it might have been related to the FBI stalking him uh, following him about to arrest him, perhaps for creating the anthrax scare in two thousand and one, my guests are bioterrorism expert Jim Posel and forensic ci- scientist Dr. Lawrence Kopolinsky. Um While during the break, um, both of them were kind of coming to the conclusion that um, that perhaps uh, Dr. Ivins did this in order to become famous as the one who saves the world. From anthrax, in other words, the more of a problem that the anthrax became, the more famous and, and valuable his uh, services would be. Let me just go now into um, what I have been hinting at. Uh, that I, uh, well, I t- you know, I tend to have some sympathy for him in in regard to. Um, well, and anyone who commits suicide, it's obviously tragic no matter what the circumstances. It's a tragic decision um, to make. And um, uh, one of the things that I think drove him to it was his feeling that his therapist, his social worker, Jean Dooley, um, had become, um, uh, was colluding against him with the FBI to um, get him to take the rap, whether it's whether that was valid or not, um, for having been the perpetrator of the anthrax killings. Um, and what she was doing right before he committed suicide was um, she went to court and asked for a peace order, uh, in other words, barring um, Mr. Ivins from coming near her. Um, and she told the court that she was scared to death of him. She apparently had uh, run group and individual counseling sessions at the center where um, Mr. Ivan, Dr. Ivan's, was a patient, and um, didn't say anything for six months until all of a sudden on July ninth, um, when supposedly there was a group session that she described um, as. Um, Ivan's being quote extremely agitated and out of control. Uh, I'm reading a report of this by the the Frederick County Maryland Daily newspaper, which is where this was. Um, when she asked him what was going on, he told the group quote a very long and detailed homicidal plan unquote. These quotes are are uh, are of the social worker, not of um, Ivan. Uh, including his, killing his social worker, I'm sorry, killing his co-workers and roaming the streets of Frederick trying to pick a fight with somebody so that he could stab the person. Um, and she said, since he was about to be indicted on capital murder charges, he was going to go out in a blaze of glory, that he was going to take everybody out with him, that they weren't going to take him out without a fight, she told the court. And then the next day, on July 10th, um, she caught, she waited till the next day. In other words, here was the group session on July ninth, uh, where he supposedly made all of these rants. Now. Now, I should say that um, when, if I were the therapist listening to that, what you have to do is, first of all, you have to decide, and this happens all the time, you have to decide whether the patient is just angry and he's expressing revenge fantasies because he feels powerless against the FBI and, and you know, probably his coworkers who he felt were conspiring against him as well. So were these revenge um, fantasies that were just a way of making himself feel better, or were they paranoid ideas feeling the FBI closing in? And did he really mean it? These are all you know, serious questions. Uh, she waits till the next day to call the Frederick Police Department who then went in and removed him from his lab <laughs> and had him committed to Frederick Memorial Hospital. Then the next day, um, Ivans called her twice, before 4.30 in the morning, and she told the court that his first message was just, quote, sort of a ranting, blaming me for having this done to him. It was sort of just rambling, unquote. His second message was um, where he told her, quote, obviously we no longer have a therapeutic relationship, and how could I do this to him? Well, okay, then he was transferred to Shepard Pratt, health system, which is a generally you know, a well-respected psychiatric hospital in Baltimore, and he called her again on July 12th. She said, that one was rather scary. Uh, he very calmly thanked me for ruining his life and opening, allowing the FBI to now be able to prosecute him for the murders, and that it was all my fault, and it's going to be my fault that they can now get him. Um, and, and, but, of course, she didn't have the recordings of these telephone messages because the FBI had taken them. Now, obviously, you know, um, Ivins felt uh, that she was, at this point, colluding with the FBI. Now, he was supposed to have been permanently committed at Shepherd Pratt, but somehow or other um, he managed to be uh, let go, one presumes, in order for him to then um, take an overdose of Tylenol, which is also bizarre. It just does not really hold water that a scientist at the level of Bruce Ivins would, com- would kill himself with Tylenol. I mean, obviously, this was apparently possible. I mean, it is possible if you take enough of anything. But it just seems as though he would have chosen something a little more scientific, you know, something that could do the job in, in smaller doses, um, and anyhow, after she, after he uh, made these phone calls, she then went to the court to get this um, peace order—they call it—or or restraining order—is really what it is. And then uh, she was asked by the judge, are you, or by her attorney in court, "Are you fearful for your personal safety?" And she said, "I am, and so is the FBI." Now, that is a very strange statement um, and does show the collusion, the the intimacy that she had at that point with the FBI, which, of course, is incredibly unprofessional. This woman should be, in my opinion, um, and yes, we don't know all the facts, but from what we know, she should be sued for malpractice. Um, It it is true that if you think someone is going to go out and kill somebody, you are supposed to warn um, the intended victims and the police. That was correct, although why she waited a day to do that is beyond me. But um, it seems as though she's really thinking more of herself than of the patient. Then she told the court, as far back as the year 2000, the respondent, in other words, Ivins, has actually attempted to murder several other people, either through poisoning He is a revenge killer. When he feels that he has been slighted or has had, especially towards women, he plots and actually tries to carry out revenge killing. He has been forensically diagnosed by several top psychiatrists as a sociopathic homicidal killer. Now, you know, when did she find out that he tried to poison people since 2000? And why is this just coming out now if she treated him for six months and how did he, I mean, this is just totally off the wall. If she knew this before, perhaps she should have let someone know something sooner if she really believed him. And who were these several top psychiatrists who labeled him a sociopathic homicidal killer? I mean, that does not make any sense, because if a psychiatrist really believed that someone was a homicidal killer, um, they wouldn't have notified authorities, or they wouldn't have let him out of Shepherd Pratt. So none of this makes sense, and um, he he then it was right after that um, she was going to testify against him before a federal grand jury, and at, in between is when he um, Ivan's killed himself. Now you know not only I mean whether or not we've heard really com- interesting and compelling uh, questions and theories and, and possibilities and, and um, from my guests, um, you know it could very well be that he uh, acting in concert with other people, whether they were terrorists or or home, um, al-Qaeda terrorists, homegrown terrorists, whatever, um, could have been responsible. But the question is, here he is feeling as though the whole world is against him. The FBI is closing in, and his own therapist is closing in. So I think that is what needs to be investigated further as well. What exactly did these mental health professionals do and not do that contributed to his suicide? I'd like to thank my guest, bioterrorism expert Jim Posel and forensic scientist, Dr. Lawrence Kobolinsky, for uh, being on the show, being brilliant, and adding their brilliant insights to this whole question, which is obviously of very paramount importance, because unfortunately, Dr. Bruce Ivins is uh, dead, but this question of bioterrorism and anthrax lingers on. So thank you both for being my guests. Thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
1: Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.